So, hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister specialising in mental capacity law at Thurton and Essex Chambers. And I'm really pleased today to be joined in the shed by not just one person, but three people. Um, they are three of the four original editors of Law and Ethics and in, in Intensive Care. And I was asked to join um, the editorial team for the second edition, which I'm going to wave around. It's an exciting book just come out. Um, and I wanted to have a discussion with them about some of the things that struck them most on working on the book. But before we get into that, I'll just give you a very quick whiz through of what's in it. This is, the, as it were, the PR bit. So it's divided into three sections. The part A is listening to patients. Part B is listening to doctors, parents and relatives. And then part C is external influences. And the book does include partly because of the length of the production process that these sorts of books always have. The book does include a section thinking about COVID-19 and pandemic planning. So it's right up to date. But I don't want to bang on too much more about this because I'm in these in, in conversation series, I always want to hear from other people. So what we thought we would do is I would ask uh, each of you um, what most struck you in working on the book. But in order to do that, can you, as it were, introduce yourself as well as you go? I happen to, where the screen is oriented, I happen to be looking firstly at Chris Danbury, who's off down to my bottom right. So Chris, over to you. Just say a little bit about yourself and then say, you know, what struck you most working on the second edition of the book? Sure. Um, so my name is Chris Danbury. I'm an intensive care consultant um, at the Royal Berkshire Hospital, although I'm moving to Southampton shortly. Um, I got interested in medical law um, when I was a registrar and did an MPhil um, and then um, following that met uh, Chris Newdick at um, a meeting organised by the, the late Dr Andrew Lawson and Chris and I got talking and one thing led to another and I ended up becoming his um, visiting fellow in health law at the university. And it struck me that there was a big hole um, in the interface between law and medicine, particularly in intensive care. Um, intensive care medicine, we're dealing with the sickest patients in the hospital. They don't have the ability to make decisions for themselves very frequently. And I could see some very obvious mistakes that were occurring um, with clinicians not understanding what the, the law expected of them, but also the law not understanding um, the aspects of the medicine that are intensive care. Um, and so having spotted the hole, um, I decided that it needed filling. Um, so after discussion with Chris, um, I approached OUP and um, one thing led to another. And uh, now we've, we've just published the second edition of the book. Um, it's I think helpful, um, it's not designed to cover all aspects of law, it's not, not um, definitive, but it's, it's to push people in the right direction and to ensure that they don't make any um, obvious mistakes. Um, so I think, I think my biggest take home is, is I've been delighted by um, the way it's been quoted to me at a number of different meetings by a number of different people in a positive way about filling some of the space between law and medicine. And just, just expanding on that very briefly, just because obviously you pulled together the first edition in a way you've described, how 
do you think things have changed between that first and second edition in terms of you know either new holes have been identified or holes partially filled or in any of the things that you're just thinking about on that change well i, I, th I think things have changed but also things haven't changed um i think there is a, a general better awareness of um best interest decision making um Obviously, we've we've had um, the case of Aintree versus James um, since the first edition, which um, I think has been very useful. Um, I, I was involved in as the expert witness in Aintree versus James, and and I thought that um, uh, that I understood the Mental Capacity Act in terms of definitions of utility and and so forth, and it was very clear that I didn't. Um, and so I think I think that's been it's it, it's been useful the last decade um, to actually tease out um, the areas which really do need further exploration um, and also really fully understanding um, best interests, um, which I think if you understand best interests, um, you understand how to approach decision making in intensive care. And I think the knowledge is better but we could do even better still. Brilliant. Thanks, Chris. And other Chris, as we were in the editorial meetings, I'm trying to remember which Chris we're talking to. So Chris Newdick, as, as it were, a co-conspirator in the first edition. Um, Hello, Alex. Well, th thank you very much for that. I'm, I'm Chris Newdick. I'm a professor of health law at University of Reading. Um, and your question was, uh, what, what, what has struck me most in the preparation of... Uh, of the book, my interest in it has always been in health law, less with um, individuals standing alone in relation to a healthcare system, but that in, in the relationship of the two of them together, individuals in a system. Um, and uh, I, it sometimes struck me that if you understand the law governing intensive care, you understood the whole of medical law because it seems to touch almost every branch uh, of, uh, of, of learning and law that, that governs the relationship between those two entities, individuals and, and the NHS. And just looking through the book, I was, uh, there's a, 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 an extract from, um, from uh, Dominic Bell, um, and um, he, he, makes, he makes a very good point that uh, ICU really isn't a specific discipline at all. It's, as he puts it, it's an amalgam of uh, complex amalgam of multi-system support reacting as and when required in different ways in almost uh, an infinite variety of circumstances. So the challenge in intensive care is difficult to, to predict, to foresee uh, from patient to patient. Um, and then the, I, I saw another uh, extract uh, this is from Louise Austin and John Coggan's chapter. Um, and they say law can be of little help in areas of serious moral, political, social uh, and social contention. So you have on the one hand that the massive uncertainty that's created uh, by, by the routine demands of intensive care. And on the other hand, uh, we are right up against the limitations of what the law can, can seriously expect to achieve. Um, and I think that that's what struck me uh, in the book, that, that the law has, uh, has a role here. Uh, and as to well, who should be the final arbiter in the, the disputes that arise, I suppose the law is the least worst option. 
but it's not the best, just because by virtue of the complexity of what goes on here. And that is why I think that the chapters of the book are, are, are genuinely fascinating, demanding, uh, and uh, as, as, as Chris Danbury says, there's still more to do. Um, obviously, the, there are four major components. One is, well, what's the balance between standard patient autonomy on the one hand, which we accept as, uh, as a given in medical law on the one hand, on, and on the other, best interests, when just by virtue of the circumstances of patients admitted to intensive care, they will very often be extremely poorly and not in any uh, uh, condition to give capacitous uh, instructions about what should happen to, uh, to, to their treatment and, and decision-making. Um, made more complex, of course, by the fact that the day-to-day that -day outcomes, hour-to-hour outcomes, and sometimes more dramatic than that, are very difficult to predict. So the, the, the outcomes are difficult, the treatment's difficult. How do you balance the standard traditional respect for patient autonomy on the one hand with the need to, uh, to do what's best for patients on the other? Um, and I think uh, that, that the, the, the discussion throughout the book um, paints a very vivid picture of the, both the challenges and, uh, and the limitations of law in trying to come to good solutions to that problem. And of course, then, uh, the, the other two problems are, are to do with futility on the one hand, and, and what is the interaction between best interests, uh, patient autonomy and utility. And of course, just the limitations of, of NHS resources. As, as, as we explain in the book, there are capacity constraints in intensive care. Uh, and the Nightingale wards are exposing the capacity constraints if they absorb staff and expertise uh, from, from their designated hospitals uh, in, in, into other units. Uh, and then of course, we have a chapter on COVID-19. Um, and that, that really is, we, when we wrote our chapter, uh, we hoped we had crested the wave of uh, the, the first wave of COVID-19, but here we are now threatened by a second wave. And uh, if we know about pandemics, there may well be a third wave. And in the meantime, we're waiting for, uh, for an, a vaccine as we speak. We're, we're hoping the vaccine will be more or less effective. So uh, yes, my, 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 what struck me as it did before, almost more so, the more we uh, investigate the problems of intensive care and the relationship of patients to doctors, the system as a whole, and in all that, the role of the next of kin, uh, it struck me how infinitely complex this area is uh, and how law might be, might be the last solution, but it's probably the least worst and that's the best we can say for it. I always like lawyers being uh, properly respectful of their position, in other words, knowing their limits. So thank you, thank you, Chris. So Carl, Carl, over to you. Okay, well, I'm Carl Waldman. I'm from the East End of London, as you can probably guess by my accent. And I ended up coming to Reading as a consultant in intensive care in 1986. So I've been there 35 years, just on the verge of going into semi-retirement. And um, first thing I'd like to say is um, how honoured I was to be asked to join Chris uh, and Chris and uh, then Andrew Lawson for the first edition. And particularly like to pay, say how indebted we are to Andrew Lawson for his wisdom 
not only as a, a, a doctor with all his ethical capability, but also as a, a patient, because as many people might know, he got diagnosed as mesothelioma and somehow survived several years with reasonably good health until unfortunately he died. But I'm really glad we were able to dedicate the second edition to, to his memory. And um, I suppose um, where, where we are now is if you go uh, on an IT ward round, as Chris has done this morning, Chris D, um, every patient you come across will have an ethical or legal slant. And you have to think things through very carefully because you're going to be handing over the care of these patients to your colleagues. You have to trust each other. And the whole issue of legal and ethical aspects in intensive care is very important to all of us and good communication is very is very important so um recently i was lucky and i'm not sure if it's lucky but i was dean of the uh, faculty of intensive care medicine which has now been going for 10 years and one of the first things we did with uh, with chris at the helm was to set up the legal and ethical policy unit and that has been a huge success and everyone actually has come on board to realize how indebted we are to the advice we get through LIPU. Um, and the last couple of things really, the pan it so happened that the pandemic occurred uh, towards the end of us writing the book. And I think it was great that we could include a chapter on pandemic. The Nightingale hospitals I actually visited and it just showed you the, the, the difficulty there was in trying to cope with so many patients or um, uh, could become ill and how we uh, distribute the resources um, and that's been uh, discussed by Chris Newdick just now but um, one other thing that Chris uh, didn't mention was that he's been leading on mediation and uh, I, I like his um, words about mediation it's far better to resolve things through mediation than going to court the next day having to work with the relatives that you were loggerheads with in court uh, uh, with the relative of, uh, um, you know with the poor patient who whose relatives you have to work with so I think those are the points I like to make but uh, a, a huge growth in uh, knowledge uh, and it's been very welcome and helpful to all those of us that work in intensive care medicine. Thank you so much, Carl. Chris. Do you want to do? Uh, do you want to just talk very briefly, just just sort of time constraints are against us, but just bring out that point about mediation a little bit, because it's a certainly a theme which is very close to my heart in terms of the law knowing its limits and how to help frame things. Sure. Um, the problem with litigating um, uh, patients in intensive care regarding best interests is is what happens the day after. So um, if you look at um, what happened, say, in Mr. James's case, um, we had a, the decision by the Court of First Instance, which was then overturned by the Court of Appeal. But then the day after the Court of Appeal made its decision, what happened? Um, the family was still back on the intensive care unit. The patient was still on the intensive care unit. All of the clinical staff were on the intensive care unit. There wasn't a judge or a lawyer to be seen, um, but the relationship between family and clinicians was not good. Um, and I've seen that repeated in other cases since then. Um, so although as, as, as the two lawyers, you, yourself and Chris Newdick have said, um, the law is the least bad option. What I would say is mediation or some formal alternative dispute resolution is significantly better than that because it preserves the relationships between or potentially preserves the relationships between the clinical team and the family. And the problem with litigation is I know 
Court of Protection is not an adversarial system. I know it's an inquisitorial system, but it doesn't feel that way. Um, and it's a very good way of destroying relationships and destroying the ability to make decisions about the patient um, after the court case has occurred. So my view is it's never too early to mediate. It's never too late to mediate. Any form of alternative dispute resolution has got to be better than litigation. But the court is there at the end of the day to resolve things that, no, that, that when there is no other way to resolve the dispute. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing which struck me most, and I was incredibly honoured to be asked to join this team, and I find it absolutely fascinating working on the book and then working both editorially and then and, and working with Dr Zoe Fritz on the chapter that we wrote together about demanding and refusing treatment, which was, I'd like to think, a lawyer and a doctor working collaboratively together and really enjoying that experience. But one of the things that's really struck me from that and from what you've just been saying now is we still don't quite yet have a sense of at what point can all the resources that we can do in terms of resolving discussions and achieving consensus, at what point does that actually flip over into we can't achieve it, we need to find some kind of resolution or some of what we're interested in is so high octane, we might know what the right answer is, but actually that's just not something that doctors can necessarily do without a court saying it's okay or it's not okay. And that, I, that boundary, I suspect, if and when we come to the third edition, which I really hope we will in due course, I'm really hoping that, that by that time, we'll have been able to have yet more kind of identification of that but the, but the only way that that can be done is, I think, through doing the way in which we've worked on this book and you worked on the book, book before, which is both the medics understanding how the law thinks, but actually absolutely critically, the law and the judges understanding how medics think. Because it's when neither side understand each other, that's where the real problems creep in. And I would really hope that this book continues in the same vein as to be in the same vein as, as the first edition as a contribution to mutual understanding. But it's definitely still, I think, a work in progress. I think so you're that, right, Alex. That was what struck me. But Chris, did you want, yeah. to, did you want to come back? Well, I, I, so it, I think what, what the book can do is try to smooth the waters of very large numbers of potential disputes uh, and with uh, Chris's expertise and others in mediation, many of those uh, uh, those serious matters can be smoothed over. But you raised the question uh, about how, what about the ones that are left over, the, the ones that still are likely to fight. Um, and um, I, I wonder whether, you know, as, as law um, society, we we are becoming more sensitive to to rights. I suspect more the rights of individuals against others rather than our rights together, working within a system together. Uh, so those rights may be, they may evolve in a more antagonistic way. And especially when, uh, uh, when people have very powerful views of their own, sometimes based on, uh, on, on, on spiritual and religious commitments, there's, there's this third element. There's, there's the, the law, there's the, clinicians and of course the relatives uh, and, and their views especially and we've, we've seen the cases um, where so much um, difficulty is generated 
uh, and as we say in the book in one of our chapters, um, you know, sometimes fueled by social media as well. It's the, it's the, there's an element there that also needs some calming. Yes, I think we better end on social media, not least because this will be going out on social media in due course. But I'm really glad that we did include a chapter on there, a really yes. good chapter by Rosie Barua. And it's, it is a really important element. And it's an element which we are, I, I mean, the lawyers have got one thing to grapple with, but the clinicians really do and it, it, it not just in relation to it being the in relation to children but as it creeps over into how the ICU uh, treatments in relation to adults are played out and disputes are played out in relation to adults as well so there's loads of yeah. material left Chris I, I was just going to say I think that's particularly worth picking up on because um, social media these high stress cases the families will often take to social media to um, promulgate their view um, but the clinical team is unable to respond um, for patient confidentiality reasons so I'm not saying that that's right or wrong but I'm saying that's the way we have it so I think social media is, is um, an asymmetrical environment when we start talking about best interests yeah yeah no it's, it's going to be one of the big dilemmas moving forward I suspect so Carl, did you want to, to have any concluding comment? Yeah, uh, one thing related to the chapter I was involved in, which was conflicts of interest. I think it's so important that we learn lessons from the activated protein C um, episode where uh, a very expensive drug was said to be the magic bullet or magic arrow, whatever you want to call it, for the treatment of um, sepsis. And turned out that other things were doing the job. So this expensive drug was no use. But it did become apparent that conflicts of interest was a very real issue. Having said that, it's very important we, work, we look forward because we need industry to help us develop drugs and vaccines. At the same time, they need us uh, to use them. So we've got to come, uh, come to some happy medium where we work together without there being any uh, problem with uh, being seen to uh, uh, benefit uh, financially or in any other way uh, from that relationship. Brilliant. Well, this just gives a flavour. Well, A, how happy I was to be working with such a fantastically interesting group of people and so many things being thrown up and just how many, well, A, what the book covers, but then also how much we've got to grapple with as Laura's, Laura Medicine hopefully continues to talk to each other sensibly in the ICU. And as, as, as we've identified in different ways, if it can be got right in ICU, it can probably got, be got right in most places. Indeed. So thank you so much, everybody, for your time. Chris, please get back to your patients because I can. I, I think they may be needing you. Thank you very much, all of you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.